This morning, 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we're looking at verses 11 through 16 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 6, 11 through 16. Let's pray one more time before we open God's Word together. Father, we do stand upon Your promises. We look to You this morning with the eyes of faith. We want to hear Your truth. We promise that we can cry out to You and that You hear the prayers of Your children. And so we cry out to You this morning. We say, speak to us, O Lord. You who are King of kings and Lord of lords, who reigns over heaven and earth, speak to us this morning, we pray. We pray it in the strong and effective name of Christ Jesus. Amen. This morning, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 16, this is the holy, inerrant, sufficient Word of God. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession and the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in His testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandments unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This is the Word of God. The grass withers and the flower fades. The Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Our uh, passage this morning begins with Paul contrasting with Timothy what he has just spoken to Timothy about the false preachers, those who were peddling false doctrine there in Ephesus, and now he is contrasting who they are and what they were doing and with what it is that Timothy is to be and what it is that Timothy is to do. But as for you, he says, but as for you. Those are powerful words. 
It's pretty easy to consider others. It's almost too easy at times to consider others. But as for you, you sit up when you hear that. Think on this. As for you, let's focus on you, Timothy. And then he calls him this. He says, Oh, man of God. They are not men of God. And this is what they look like. This is what they are attending to. This is what they are doing. But as for you, O man of God, that'll make you sit up. That'll make you listen. Paul has three things that he puts before Timothy. As John Stott helpfully put it, and I'm just going to use his three points this morning. As soon as I read it, I said, oh, that's it. These three things, the ethical, the doctrinal, and the experiential. Three points this morning, the ethical, the doctrinal, and the experiential. This is at least, in my mind, what makes for a good Christian. I have often said that to others, a life that is lived along the ethical, the doctrinal, and the experiential is the great aim of the Christian life. I have said to others often that my ministry is aimed at one thing as I think about my ministry, and that is that I want to form and I want to shape warm-hearted, experiential Calvinists. That's the aim of my ministry. Simply these three things, just the last two are in a little different order than from how Paul puts them here. Ethically mature, doctrinally sound, experientially living Christians. Warm-hearted, experiential Calvinists. Let's look at that together. First, warm-hearted or the ethical. He gives Timothy two general instructions here. He says, Flee and pursue. Ethics matters for the Christian. The Christian is not simply a person of the intellect. That's not simply what we are. I think some make that mistake and think that if they think the right things about God, that that is sufficient, that that's the essence of being a Christian. But the Christian understands that the mind and the heart, that they are tied together, they can't be separated. What you are to believe is to inform. It's to shape. It's to mold you. One is not independent from the other. Timothy, as a man of God, flee these things and pursue other things. That's ethics. Right belief shapes right living. Our faith has feet. What we believe is to dominate Dominate our living. So Timothy, flee these things. Well, what things? Well, the things I just mentioned. All of these things that these opponents to the gospel are preaching. All these things that the opponents of the gospel are seeking after. Flee the love of money. Flee from worldliness. Flee from coveting. Flee from discontentment. 
Flee from causing constant friction. Flee from conceit and unhealthy craving for controversy. Flee from envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. Why? Because it's opposed to your God, O man of God. It's opposed to Him. And if you are tied to Him, it is opposed to you. You flee. It is not, hear me, it is not cowardice for a Christian to flee from sin. You are to rightfully flee. It was not cowardice. When Joseph left his cloak behind, when Potiphar's wife was grabbing at him to seduce him, that was not cowardice, that was wisdom that he fled. Some of you need to be fleeing. You need to be fleeing. You treat sin like it's something that you can domesticate. Like this little sin is a pet dog that I can bring into my house of my life and I can tell it to sit down at times and I can tell it to lay down at times and I can domesticate that thing. It's not something that can be domesticated. It is a wolf that you have let in. We're to flee from sin. Flee. Remember Paul's address here, O man of God. You belong to Him. You're not your own. Sin's opposed to God, so we're opposed to sin. It's God whom Paul notes in verse 13 that we live in the presence of. And so, though sin allures like Potiphar's wife, though it promises ecstasy, it will promise all kinds of happiness and joy and pleasure and satisfaction, you and I as a man or a woman of God are to run from it. But the Christian doesn't simply run from. He or she runs to. Pursue, he says in the second half of verse 11. Pursue. Chase after these things. Well, what things are you and I to pursue, to chase after in Christ Jesus? Well, he says righteousness. Be fair and be upright in all of your interactions with other people. That is, live with integrity. Pursue righteousness. Godliness. Seek God in all things. Paul uses this word in different forms eight different times in this one book. This is an emphasis of his to Timothy. You are to be godly. Pursue godliness. Live for God, not for the world. Faith. You have faith, Timothy, but you are to grow in this faith. Notice that faith is something that you and I are to pursue. It's something that we have. But you see, there is a holy discontentment that every Christian is to have. You and I are never to be settled with the faith that we possess. We're always to desire to grow more and more and more in that faith. And notice there's a pursuit to it. 
This doesn't just come. You don't just sit on your hands and it just explodes more and more. No, he's saying you pursue after this in Christ Jesus. You attend to the means of grace, the word and prayer. You come to corporate worship. You seek the fellowship of the saints. You seek to kill sin and to grow in righteousness by the power of His Spirit at work within you. You pursue it. To grow in faith. To live intentionally. It takes focus. It takes discipline. And then he says love. Faith and love, they always go together. Always go together in Paul's mind. If you have faith, you have love. Love for God, love for others. You pursue it. Steadfastness. It is patience in hard things. Having patience in the midst of hard things. That's a hard one to pursue. He's telling Timothy, you are to pursue this. The most curious, though, is the last. And that's gentleness. If steadfastness is patience in hard things, gentleness is patience with hard people. And that is to be pursued. I want you to think about the context here. Paul and writing in a time to Timothy when the faith is in jeopardy, Christianity is being attacked in its infancy by false teachers who are not outside the church but are within the church. And Paul tells Timothy to pursue gentleness. It may seem at odds. In 2 Timothy, he will say to Timothy this, that a worker approved by God is one who is quote, correcting his opponents with gentleness. This seems to be forgotten or ignored or even ridiculed in our day that a Christian man or a Christian woman, a man of God or woman, is to be gentle. Gentle. I've been reading a book filled with funeral sermons and memorial addresses of some of the, well, all of the early professors and theologians at Princeton Theological Seminary when it was a bastion of orthodoxy, no longer is, but when it was in the early 19th century, and as these men would pass, uh, great theologians in the church, great professors. It's been Curious to me to read all of these funeral addresses and memorials that were written about them and funeral and sermons that were preached at their funerals. And over and over and over, without fail, it's said of almost, I say almost because I think it's every, but I don't want to be hyperbolic, almost every single funeral address or memorial that I've read speaks about that theologian being a gentleman. Does that mean that they were milk toast? They were weak? They were yellow bellies? Far from it. They were men who stood on truth. They were principled men. They were willing to stand and fight. 
Not only were they willing, but almost every single one of them engaged in polemics when it was necessary, and yet without fail they did so as gentlemen. I just want to read a few words said about one upon his death. While his aim was to confound his adversary by unanswerable arguments and to bring out what he believed to be the truth in the light of noonday, he never sought egg from vague insinuations or bitter invective, never forgot his own personal dignity even in the closest conflict in which he could be engaged. It is within our distinct recollection that an individual who had held for some time the relation of a vigorous opponent to him in a theological controversy assured us that he was deeply impressed by his uniformly fair and gentlemanly bearing and that much as he differed from him, he could not but regard him with the highest respect. I long for a day where a gentleman is no longer disparaged, let alone mocked and ridiculed, but it's actually a title fittingly sought among Christians. Gentleness is to be a pursuit, O man of God. Hearts are to be inflamed with warmness toward God and towards others. That's the ethical. Second, the doctrinal. It's not enough to be moral, warm-hearted. One must also be doctrinally sound. Paul says to Timothy in verse 12, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession. The Christian both flees and the Christian fights. Both are necessary. Fight the good fight of the faith. That is, this is not the faith he just spoke about in verse 11, that subjective faith. Now he is talking about objective faith. The faith. The Christian Orthodox faith that you and I confess and profess and that we are to hold on to, he says, fight for it. Fight for it. That word for fight is a strong word in the Greek. It's a word agonosi. You can hear it in the word. There's effort here. There's wrestling. There's struggling. It's a word that's often used to refer to boxing or to refer to wrestling. It's at times, no doubt in this context, used to refer to a kind of physical combat, warfare. The fight for the faith, Timothy. There are a lot of things that aren't worth fighting for. The fight for the faith is worth it. So much so that Paul calls it a good fight. Why is it good? Because if the faith is not contended for, it is lost. It's lost. There is a natural erosion in the world that you and I dwell in. That if the faith is just left alone, and if we think it will just stand, 
without us contending for it and fighting for it. There are all kinds of destructive forces. Sin and worldliness and Satan and hell and death and all the demonic forces and all that is waging warfare against this faith to minimize it, to tear it apart. There's constant warfare surrounding it. And so the faith never remains apart from effort by Christians. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. That is a promise for our Lord, from our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet what He does is He calls you and I in the church to stand upon the wall and defend the faith. Part of the way that the gates of hell do not prevail against the church is that you and I are involved in this warfare. We fight. When Christ bids a sinner come, we not only enter the family of God, but the army of God. Yes, He's your Father. And He is also your King. You're not just a son and daughter, you are also a soldier. So you remember that, Timothy. Every Christian is to fight the good fight. This faith is so easily lost. So easily lost. You see this over and over in institutions and denominations and local churches and you are hard-pressed, you and I are hard-pressed to look out and find an institution, whether it is a seminary, a college, a church, a denomination that has existed for a hundred years and held on to the faith. It's hard to find. It has to be fought for. None of us should take it for granted. We get a little distracted and we lose it. I look a little different this morning. Some of you have noted it. You've given me signs as I was standing up here at the beginning of the service. Some of you offering to help me. Uh, let me explain. I was uh, outside this week, the beginning of the week, and it was a sunny, beautiful day. And while I was outside, a spider started across my face. It was a huge, hairy beast. If it had eight legs, it had 20. And you would think that that would elicit a cry or a scream. My manly constitution had none of that. But in a moment, I reacted. Some might have counted that as anxiousness. It was not anxiousness. It was cat-like reflexes. And I... I, with two fingers, as this thing was crawling, it was so big it wasn't crawling, it was parading across my face like it owned it. I flicked it with two fingers, and it sailed. Victory. But I also flicked my glasses. And did I mention I was on a kayak in the middle of a lake? <laughs> Not so much victory. Uh, Just a little distraction. That wasn't so little in this case, but just a little distraction. And you can lose that which is of far more value. 
It's easy to take for granted the faith that we've been handed. I just want you to think back over the centuries. Some of you know church history. Some of you have very little knowledge of church history. But all of you have to have some semblance of the mothers and fathers of the faith. How many of them gave their earthly lives. Gave their children's lives. Gave their grandchildren's lives so that you might have this faith. Gave their lives. You haven't contended yet to the point of shedding blood. You and I are to fight the good fight of the faith with all that we are. It's not an overstatement to say that if the church loses truth, it loses everything. Doctrinal soundness is not a nice add-on to the joy of our fellowship. It is its soul. Without truth, there is no church. Fight for it, Timothy. Fight for it, O man of God. Let's give a warning and if you've seen the documentaries, there have been a number of documentaries that have come out over the last few years about these men and women that do free solo climbing. Uh, they will approach these rock faces, some of the highest mountains in the world, and they will climb these rock faces without carabiners, without harnesses, without ropes. They're just using their hands and they're just using their feet. And if they fall, it's, it's a fall. It's not a mistake that almost every single one of them that has reached some kind of fame or prominence over the last few decades has died doing this sport. I was uh, watching one of the documentaries one day and they were doing a psycho analysis of one of these famous rock climbers. And as they did tests on him, they found that his brain literally had no sense of fear. It never registered fear. There's something wrong with him. Literally. It's not a joke. There's something wrong with Fear is there to make you stop from doing stupid things. There's some who love to fight. and There's something wrong with them. You shouldn't ever love to fight. But let's also be clear, there is equally something wrong with the Christian who is unwilling to ever fight, there is something wrong with them. There are good fights. Fight the good fights of the faith, Timothy. I will tell you young marrieds sometimes when they come down and they sit down and doing counseling with them, I will tell them sometimes when they are worked up about different things, I will tell them some fights are worth having. You gotta have them. There are good fights. 
Now, when you fight, you do it in love. You do it in kindness. You do it as a gentle man or a gentle woman. But dear Christian, for the faith, there are fights worth having because doctrine matters. If we don't contend for it, we lose it. It's gone. A number of your elders and your pastors and your and interns and fellows here at URC will head down to Alabama this week, Birmingham, where this year our national gathering of our denomination will meet together in what we call our General Assembly. And in that General Assembly, part of what we do is we gather together, and part of the reason that we gather together is to fight the good fight of the faith. There will be debates. And there will be sharpening one another. And there will be rebuking doctrinal error. It often takes effort. It often costs. And it is always worth it. Because the faith matters. Paul reminds us in verse 13 that Christ stood firm before Pontius Pilate. He made the good confession. And this same Christ is returning as He stood. So He's Relaying to Timothy, so you are to stand. As he confessed and upheld the truth, so you are to confess and uphold the truth. And this is not a suicide mission. This is not a fool's errand. Because why? Because the same Christ that stood and made his good confession and profession in the face of Pontius Pilate is the same one who is returning upon the clouds and he will reward those who stand firm in him. He will appear. This faith is worth fighting for. Notice how Paul describes what our faith teaches about God. This faith that's worth fighting for. Verse 15, he says He is sovereign. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is immortal. That is, He is never one who dies. He dwells in unapproachable light. He is deserving of all honor and eternal dominion, meaning rule forever and ever. Paul is speaking about a great God. A God that yours and my finite minds and our finite eyes, even when they are glorified, that even then they cannot fully take in His person. Because He is so great. Oh, erupts here with what many to believe an early hymn or creed in the church. He can't help himself when he thinks about this, this great, sovereign, good God. God to be honored and even feared. At the beginning, I know some of you probably hesitate at me saying that the goal of my ministry, as I've often explained it to people, is to form people as warm-hearted, experiential Calvinists and say, well, ah, Calvinists, that sounds pretty parochial. I'm not so concerned about people loving Calvin. I could care less about that. Uh, what I mean by that is an understanding of God. An understanding of salvation that confesses and 
believes that God is truly sovereign in all things, including our salvation. And that everything is aimed at His glory. Everything. And when I was in seminary, I was trying to wrestle through this whole Calvinist, you know, the other side of the equation often that's brought up as Arminianism. Well, there are other sides of the equation, semi-Pelagianism and Pelagianism, etc. But I was walking up to my professor, and I went up to my professor after hearing him speak. It was, was a predominantly Arminian school seminary, and I had heard him speak, and I said to him, I said, Professor such and such, are you a Calvinist? I was just learning the language. And he said, Jason, I'm Augustinian. Okay, I don't care. Same idea. God is sovereign. Is that He is sovereign over all things. He is not a domesticated God. A domesticated God is no God. That He is great and He is majestic and He is above all. That all of salvation, all of creation, all of the universe, all of it is singularly aimed at His glory. All of it. All things from Him and through Him and to Him. To Him be glory forever. Paul's addressed the ethical and the doctrinal Finally, he addresses the experiential. It's not enough to simply be moral nor to add to that morality the right doctrine of God. We are also to experience this God, to truly know Him, to truly love Him. Verse 12, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good profession in the presence of many witnesses. Notice first that Timothy made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. When we come to Christ, we confess our faith in Christ before others. We do this together here at URC as you become a member of this local church. You are admitted into the membership of the church. And then what do you do? You profess and confess this faith that you hold to before the entire body. This is what Timothy did. Membership is not an arbitrary decision on our part, but confessing our faith in the presence of witnesses. Christian faith is public faith. It is participation in a community. There are to be witnesses. And what does Paul mean by take hold of the eternal life to which you've been called? Well, Timothy is clearly a Christian. He's been a Christian for some time. Or otherwise he wouldn't be called to the pastorate. Paul's already made that clear that a man that is to be called as an elder is not to be a recent convert. So he can't be a recent convert. No, we know that he received this good deposit when he was a child from his mother and his grandmother, Lois and Eunice, that they passed on this faith to him. He's been a Christian for some time. So what does Paul mean when he says to him that he is to take hold of the eternal life? The eternal life is already his. I think as Stott said, the probable answer is that it is possible to possess something without embracing and enjoying it. And I think that is the point. 
And that is part of the reason that Paul himself erupts in this glorious praise to God. Because he is demonstrating, he's moved himself as he's thinking about this great salvation that they are called to preach, this great thing that they are to defend and fight for and contend for. It leads him immediately to exalt this great God. Why? Because Paul himself experientially knows God. And he wants to encourage Timothy to grow in that same spiritual knowingness. Enjoy Him. Delight in Him. Take hold of it, Timothy. Grasp it. Experience your God. Calvinists have at times been, I think, right, rightly called the frozen chosen. Uh, sometimes we've got to wake up our faces and realize that a smile is a good thing when you've received such a great salvation. You can demonstrate that to people, especially in worship. But that is not rightly lived Calvinism, that kind of frozen chosen that is used as a pejorative of us. It's true that Calvinism has a very high view of God. We believe there is nothing greater, that all things are aimed at Him, that He governs all things by the word of His power, that He created all things by the word of His power. That He sustains all things by the word of His power. That He will bring all things to an end by the word of His power. That He is so great that your eyes and your minds and mine cannot take Him all in. That He is truly transcendent. And yet what we equally confess as Calvinists is that this great Sovereign, mighty, sovereign God draws near to us in Christ Jesus. That He indwells us. That He unites us to Himself in His beloved Son. And that He will make His home among us forever. That we experience Him. That we dwell in relationship with Him. What delights you about God right now? Delights you. Are you enjoying Him? What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What delights you about God? Can you name something? You can if you're more than a moralist. You can if you're more than a doctrinalist. If you're experiencing living relationship with Him. Now that ebbs, it flows. There are some days that it feels like He is very distant. There are entire periods of time that 
that I know I've gone through, I know some of you are going through right now, where he feels incredibly distant. You know he's sovereign. You believe he's transcendent. You don't experience him. You find very little delight. It ebbs, it flows. But do you live in him? You live with him? Take hold. It's one thing to know about his love, it's quite another to know his love. Paul knew it, that's why he can't control himself and he just erupts in this doxology. He knows him and he delights in him. King of kings, this Lord of lords, this one who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no eye has ever seen or can see. And then Paul says to him, be honor and eternal dominion. And then he's got to close it out with an amen. That is a verily, truly, I, I just can't multiply this anymore. Let me just, just say my verily, truly to this. I believe this. soul stirred like that. Christian faith is not a science. It's not an imaginative story. It's not a psychological crutch. It is experienced in living relation with this crucified and risen sovereign Savior and His Father and the Spirit, this one triune God. Do you know Him? Do you delight in Him? Are you pursuing that? Let's close with this. There are those who center upon the ethical and simply live as legalistic moralists. That's not biblical Christianity. There are those who center upon the doctrine and simply live as detached theologians. That's not biblical Christianity. There are those who center upon experience and simply live as emotional mountaintop day trip seekers. That's not biblical Christianity. I believe with every fiber of my being that warm-hearted, experiential Calvinism is biblical Christianity. Ethical, experiential, doctrinal. That's our faith. Pray you'd hold on to it, fight for it, pursue it, and grow in it to the glory of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, we do exalt You this morning. As the great God of the heavens and the earth. King of kings. Lord of lords. The great I Am. 
who dwell in inapproachable light, immortal, invisible, are God only wise. In light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. How we long, truly long for that day that we shall see you in all of your glory in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is very God of very God. And would you help us to live in light of that day, holding fast the profession we have made, contending for the faith, and taking joy and delight in you. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.